welcome to the History Obscura reading room once more, friends. You know, the wonderful thing about stories from our collective history is that, more often than not, they perfectly mirror events and issues plaguing our contemporary world. With that in mind, let today's story illuminate the meaning of the word dictator. Once upon a time, in ancient Rome, an early form of democracy took root. As a republic, the city-state held elections each year to determine who would lead the government. Two men were elected on the premise that they must agree on every action taken as a leader. These elected men were called co-consuls. Though this early Roman system seems at first glance to have been quite clever and fair, it was at no time a true democracy. Why not, I hear you ask? A true democracy, by definition, requires that all people within a community are equal in power. In Rome, however, it was only adult males from the patrician class who could run for political office and vote for the state's representatives. To be able to cast one's vote via an engraved potsherd, Romans not only had to be adult males born in Rome, but they had to own land there as well. The ruling minority of citizen voters, therefore, comprised as little as 25% of the entire population of the ancient city-state. No young people, women, imported slaves, freedmen, or unlanded residents of Rome could vote. By the year 70, citizenship was extended to patricians born within the realm of Rome's expansive territory, and not just those within the capital city itself. There was one piece of legislation in the Roman Republic that rendered the rule of its elected co-consuls void, however, and that pertained to the dictator. According to Roman law, during times of war, a pre-appointed dictator would step in taking ultimate power from the consuls and doing whatever he deemed necessary to protect the city and its foreign interests. All members of the government were subject to the will of the dictator until such a time as he stepped down. Dozens of dictators were called into service during the long history of the Roman Republic, including its final dictator, one Gaius Julius Caesar. Caesar convinced the Roman government to name him Dictator for Life, a move that many senators found wildly inappropriate. Caesar's murder on the 15th day of March in the year 44 led to a series of civil wars that concluded in the dissolution of the Republic and the establishment of the Roman Empire under the rule of a line of single, all-powerful emperors. The multitude of slaves who virtually ran the Roman economy worked not just as household servants or field laborers, but as business accountants, industry managers, even teachers and doctors. 
They were often captured and brought to Rome from Greece, where Romans believed some of the most intelligent and cultured people were born. In fact, it was the fashion for patrician men to provide an enslaved Greek teacher for his children. It is for this reason that so much of Greek culture was absorbed into that of the Romans. From the pantheon of the gods, to the belief in philosophy and pursuit of mathematics. Even democracy itself was based upon the democratic Athenian state. Neither the Roman Republic nor its successor, the Roman Empire, was able to entirely pacify the millions of disenfranchised people within its realm. There were three so-called servile wars in which people from the serving class rebelled and hoped to gain their own independence and a modicum of authority over their own lives. The Third Servile War began in the year 73 BCE, when a man forced to fight as a gladiator throughout the Roman Republic escaped his training encampment in Capua alongside some 70 other prisoners. That man's name was Spartacus, and he became an impromptu general of sorts to the men who followed him. Within two years of their escape, Spartacus's band of escaped slaves had gained 120,000 members, among them women and children whose lives had been ruled by the whims of official Roman citizens. The massive band formed itself into a raiding party attacking towns throughout the Roman peninsula and looting as they liked. It was a time of unencumbered freedom and the chance to act out in pure, unadulterated anger at the society which had enslaved them so thoughtlessly. The swarm of slaves, under the leadership of Spartacus and several other members of the group, ran amok of the Roman army. A long list of impressive consuls and generals set after Spartacus and the rioting slaves, but the latter ran free for three years before being caught between the armies of Pompey and Crassus. Each of the 6,000 rebel slaves who were not killed during the ensuing battle were crucified by the Roman army as it marched from Rome to Capua. Both Pompey and Crassus were elected co-consuls for the political year of 70 BCE as a prize for their service to the status quo. Slavery was never formally abolished in Rome or modern Italy until 1981, but women were granted voting rights a few decades sooner, in 1945. Many countries who had participated in the First World War had relied on its female population to produce food, fuel, and machinery, while millions of men fought throughout Europe, Asia, and Africa. Afterwards, leaders of many of these same nations were forced to admit that women were productive and intelligent enough to handle the great pressures of working outside the home and perhaps even voting. Italy did not concede any such facts until the close of the Second World War, 
According to historian Leslie Hume, the women's contribution to the war effort challenged the notion of women's physical and mental inferiority and made it more difficult to maintain that women were, both by constitution and temperament, unfit to vote. If women could work in munitions factories, it seemed both ungrateful and illogical to deny them a place in the voting booth. But the vote was much more than a simple reward for war work. The point was that women's participation in the war helped to dispel the fears that surrounded women's entry into the public arena. Despite the fall of semi-democracy in the Roman Republic and the myriad ways in which it failed most of the people within its borders, it is to this model of governance that much of the world has looked to for inspiration over the course of the last nearly 2,000 years. Perhaps, though democracy itself has been touted as a beacon of equality and justice, there are those who see it the way it originally was. A system that merely pretends to extend equality of power while protecting a wealthy, ruling elite. Unfortunately, it is not just democracy whose seemingly egalitarian ideals have been twisted to suit the needs of a burgeoning dictator. Communism and socialism have faced exactly the same treatment, and these events have occurred within living memory. In fact, the term People's Democratic Dictatorship was used by Chinese leader Mao Zedong during the 20th century apparently as a way to adhere to pure Marxist philosophy. Under the banner of communism, Zedong argued that there must be a dictatorship in place that was formed by the working people. Only then could China prevent sliding back into a bourgeois dictatorship in favor of the aristocracy. Mao's words based largely on the writings of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in The Communist Manifesto, professed to care for the workers and underprivileged of China. Mao spoke of himself as an equal, but effectively took a leadership position within the Communist Party of China and eventually declared the People's Republic of China a one-party state under control of the Communist Party. His government persecuted right-leaning dissidents and enforced industrialization into a country whose economy had always been based on agriculture. A widespread famine ensued, killing between 20 and 46 million people. Another estimated million perished from political persecution. So, Chairman Mao, a communist or a dictator? Let's see. The word communism comes from the Latin word communis and refers to an economic system in which goods are owned publicly and are available to all as needed. It's also free of class structure. That makes the definition for dictator one holding complete autocratic control a person with unlimited governmental power. Like Julius Caesar, 
Chairman Mao Zedong fits rather neatly into the second definition, wouldn't you say? There's one more example I can think of, too. I'm sure you've heard of him. A rather loud and grimacing man, given to piling detention centers full of so-called illegal people. Closing borders and claiming the media stories against him are insincere. Yes, I'm talking about the most destructive dictator of the 20th century, Adolf Hitler. Born in Austria, Hitler emigrated to Germany and served with the German military before becoming particularly interested in politics. He confused and muddled the combined purposes of socialism and German labor parties, creating the National Socialist Party or Nazi Party. Socialism, by the way, in definition is a social system in which the means of production, distribution, and exchange of goods are owned or regulated by the community. Socialism is not, quite obviously, what Adolf Hitler truly wanted. In fact, after earning himself election to head of the Nazi party, and then appointment as Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Hitler began pursuing the matters he had outlined in his own book, Mein Kampf, some eight years earlier. His platform called for a united, greater Germany, laying territorial claim not only to countries with significant German populations, but expansion for the sake of making Germany bigger. Hitler's idealized German Empire would deny citizenship to those of the Jewish faith or of Jewish descent. Though he had taken control of a left-leaning socialist faction, Hitler was outspokenly against socialism and its first cousin, communism, as well as representative democracy. Furthermore, he believed in the ultimate authority of the Aryan race, a supposed subgroup of Caucasians who tend towards having blue eyes, blonde hair, and pale skin. Not that he possessed all of these qualities himself. According to a 1943 U.S. official profile on Hitler, composed by psychologist Henry Murray, the German Chancellor was an utter wreck who was incapable of normal human relationships. He never did any manual work, never engaged in athletics, and was turned down as forever unfit for conscription in the Austrian army. Hitler managed his insecurities by worshipping brute strength, physical force, ruthless domination, and military conquest. Even sexually, Hitler was described as a full-fledged masochist who humiliated and abused his partners. He was incapable of consummating in a normal fashion, wrote Murray, adding, This infirmity we must recognize as an instigation to exorbitant cravings for superiority. Unable to demonstrate male power before a woman, he is impelled to compensate by exhibiting unsurpassed power before men in the world at large. As mentioned, when Hitler did have sexual relations with a woman, he 
he exhibited masochistic behaviors. Hitler was said to have had multiple partners, but he eventually married his long-term mistress, Eva Braun, hours before the two committed suicide together in his Berlin bunker. Jews were the clear demographic for Hitler to project his personal frustrations and failings on because they, to quote, do not fight back with fists and weapons. Hitler denied that his father was born illegitimately and had at least two failed marriages, that his grandfather and godfather were Jews, and that one of his sisters was a mistress of a wealthy Jew. The one consistent fact in humanity's long history with dictators is that they can align themselves with any apparently beneficial ideology. They'll inflict years of damage on the people they've pretended to care for, and rip whole countries apart thanks to confusion and misused rhetoric. In the end, though, all of them die. Be it firing squad, guillotine, axe, cerebral hemorrhage, or suicide in a bunker while his city burns around him. That's all, friends. Don't give up the good fight. Stay safe out there. Good night. Mm -hmm.